My name's Brad. If you have your Bibles, we're going to camp out in Acts chapter 10 today. But before we get there, so go ahead and turn that way, get ready to go. Uh, when November 21st rolls by, my wife and I will have been married 13 years. Yep. Woohoo! For some of you, that's like dropping the bucket. For others of you, that's a long time. Uh, and so, but it's coming up. So we got married. Uh, it, it, she said yes. I said yes. Uh, real quick, she didn't get away. And then here we are here. But when we went on our honeymoon, we went to the island of Maui. And, and we, we stayed on, at a beach. We didn't really leave the beach. Uh, we, we snorkeled. We swam. I snorkeled and scuba dove. She did not. There's sharks in the water, so she stayed out. Uh, but she stayed on the beach. And so, but as we're sitting on the beach, as you're looking from where we were, there's another island just across the channel. Have you guys ever noticed this? It's the island of Molokai. Have, do we know about Molokai? Small little island. <laughs> of course you know about Molokai. She's from Hawaii. Okay. And so I'm sitting there going, hey, what is that thing over there? And, and I see the, the brochures telling me like beautiful snorkeling on Molokai. And I'm like, okay, so let's get Google out. Wonder killer. And so I Google it. It's not very big. It's not very popular. There's a big mountain on it. Am I right? It's not, not a lot of people live there. And so now I have fact checker over here. And then I went to the, the history section of Molokai. It's a quiet place. And Molokai doesn't have that great of a history as we get going. Molokai had a rough past. In the 1800s, it was used as a, as a leper colony for leprosy, not lepers, but people who had leprosy, or as we call it today, Hansen's disease. And so what they would do in the mid-1800s, they didn't know how to, con to contain it, they didn't know how to treat it like we do today, uh, they would put the people back uh, who had it on that island, and they would drop off supplies. That's how the government of Hawaii had done it. And they weren't the only ones who were doing this. This was how we treated leprosy for the longest time. They were quarantined, segregated. Uh, they took those who were sick and put them there, and in that, those days they didn't know what to do. So they would deliver goods, and they would hopefully cover the needs, but in essence, leprosy, when you had it, you were confined to that area, and that's all you could do. You could stay there, and once you're there, you're not coming off of it. But there was one man, and his name was Father Damien of Molokai, and he was a little different. He, uh, he was already serving with the priest in the islands. He was a, a Jesuit priest, and he was around. And so he volunteered, in his words, to, to sacrifice myself for those people on Molokai. And so he went. He lived in they, their world. He dressed in their, in, in their sores, or he dressed their sores. He hugged their children. He buried their dead. And he planted a church, and the choir sang through the rags that would cover their face. They had communion. They worshiped together. And he referred to his congregation as we lepers instead of saying brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful story when there's a book all about it. And it's a beautiful thing of what he did. And he became one of them. Until one day, somewhere in the, the transmission of touch, he literally became one of them. The disease transferred to him in some, some way or form. That precautions weren't really, they didn't know what to do to stop it. And then he died of leprosy on April 15th, 1889. It's a great intro, right? You're like, yes, this is wonderful. Let's talk about this. Happily, we've, we've learned, and we'll get to the point here in a second. Happily, we've learned how to treat leprosy. We don't sequester like we used to. Uh, we've done away with the colonies, but the attitude that we have that led to the sequestering sometimes remains. Where sometimes we can view people as inferior, and we can have a whole list of reasons why. Culture, choices, backgrounds, race, you name it, we've labeled it. It happens from the playground to the boardroom. Certain kids play with certain kids. Certain adults only socialize with certain adults. And we have a pecking order to our world. 
We love our higher horse. We prefer the rich over the poor, the educated over the dropouts. Uh, We're drawn to people who look like us, we're drawn to people who talk like us, and we're drawn to people who think and act like us. It's a normal thing that we do. Then when those people don't, we'll find ways uh, to put them in boxes and we'll label the boxes anything of our choosing. It's called a prejudgment or prejudice. It's a judgment based on a preconceived notion. Prejudice can be a lie that you've told yourself, a lie that you've heard for the longest time, uh, a stereotype that you think is correct, even though it's just a stereotype, but it's absolutely false. Prejudice, it's based on many things. Sometimes it's based on race. Sometimes it's based on just a normal thing because you wore a blue shirt and I have things that in my head about people who wear blue shirts. It's a preconceived notion. And as we look at Acts 10, and hopefully you found your way there, it's the backbone of this passage. In this instance, in Acts 10, it's prejudice or a prejudgment based upon race. People will often say that the Bible doesn't talk about racism, and that's an outright lie. It does. And when it speaks about racism, we'll scream it from the mountaintops. And when it doesn't, we won't. But I'll give you a spoiler alert. Never is the Bible in favor of racism, ever. In this case, in the, in the case of Acts 10, it was racism over Jew and Gentile, a division based upon nationalities, where they were from, a division based, also based on, as we'll see later in the passage, an outdated view or thinking of a bad theology that Jesus came to do away with. This is the world that Acts 10 sits in. And then today, as you read Acts 10, or as we go through it, there's a lot there. We'll skim over parts of it. It's kind of like Luke is writing a movie. And and so you have Peter over here. And at the exact same time, you have a man named Cornelius over here. And and Luke is, if he could do a split screen like they do on the TV shows, he would have them both at the same time because they're coming together. Their worlds are about to converge. So he tells this story in, in, in a, a, a parallel. Peter is experiencing the same thing Cornelius is experiencing, and God is orchestrating this moment as a divine appointment. First, before we get into these two, let's look at some of the obstacles that caused their prejudice. There was a racial gulf between Jew and Gentile, and to say it was just a minor gulf is way dismissing it. It was huge. It was a grand canyon of we don't like them. And it didn't matter what side you on. The Jewish person, were not, they were not allowed to eat or drink anything given to them by a Gentile. Jews weren't allowed to aid Gentile mothers in labor. Jewish doctors were not allowed to tend to Gentile patients. And before we harp on the Jews more, just know that there's a whole list of things that the Gentiles were not allowed to do towards Jews. The feelings were mutual. One group of people thought themselves higher than the other group of people because where they came from and their heritage. Because Because of this, this, no no Jew Jew would would ever have have anything anything to do with with the Gentiles. They were deemed unclean. On the other hand, the Gentiles weren't accepting of the Jews either. They They had firmly held prejudices against them. Sometimes the prejudice that, was, that we have and the prejudice that they have are built on these tiny lies that we've expounded. So here's some of the lies that, that they've based their whole viewpoint on. 
And we see this today from bad historians to hack politicians and lazy theologians. This kind of stuff still takes place today. We, we grab onto certain facts about people and we ignore other facts about people and then we end up hurting them. The Jews like to tell stories about how the Gentiles hid dead babies under the floorboards of their house. And so they didn't want to go inside of them. I wouldn't either if that was the case. The, the Gentiles, Gentiles had another, another set, set of prejudgments. The Gentiles, the Gentiles thought that the Jews, Jews were stuck, stuck up because, because they, they didn't, didn't eat pork. I, I, I wonder that too. Pork is delicious, especially if it's smoked perfectly and you have a nice barbecue sauce too. It's wonderful. But pork in that day was a very cheap, affordable meat. And so when the Gentiles see that the Jews don't eat that, they go, oh, they're pretentious. And then they thought that they were lazy because they took a day off called the Sabbath. And then because they didn't go to social activities like parties and, 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 and pagan, at pagan temples, they thought that they didn't care or didn't want to be a part of their world. And so they were just separatists. So if they don't want to engage with me, why on earth would I engage with them? The Gentiles told stories about how the Jewish people stole everything that was in their temple. So it was perfectly okay for people to go into the Jewish temple and then take whatever they wanted. Yet at the same time, you have these divisions between Jewish, Jewish people and Gentile, and Gentile people, and people. You have these you lies, have these that, lies they're that they're believing about, about how, they how they live, and all of them are false. Yet they're still living next door to each other. They're still living quietly, happy alongside of each other, giving in to these lies based on prejudice. And then it was masked as a religious mandate. For the Jews, you can go back to Leviticus and read all about it, and I encourage you to read Leviticus at least once in your life. It, it's an interesting, eye-opening passage or book of the Bible. It's fun if you get into it. Uh, but in Leviticus, it, it, there was this part where they said to separate from people who were non-Jewish. This, I'm going to go on a tangent here, this was a temporary thing that God placed for the Jews to remain in existence. Now, if you look at the scriptures, there's a whole spiritual warfare going on. Satan knew Jesus was coming. It was promised to him back in Genesis 3. It would come through the line of Abraham, the line of Israel, the Jewish line. So what's Satan tactic? Okay, remember spiritual warfare. I'm going to destroy the Jewish heritage. And so what's God do? Hey, that's what the enemy's doing. Let's wall ourselves off here until Jesus comes and the plan is hatched. And then we can take away the, the separation clause. And that is exactly what's happening in Scripture. The Jewish people were supposed to remain holy and separate. Jesus comes along. The line of Christ has been preserved. He's born. He comes. He dies. Paul says the dividing wall, what kept people separate, is now in rubbles. It's no longer there anymore. We don't need the separation anymore. It's gone. It's temporary. Now we can lift that. And the command from Jesus then was to go out. And we see this in the last two weeks. And the, the temporariness of the law is what trips up some of us, right? But think of it this way. How many of you grew up playing games in the street? Yeah, in the neighborhood, we played football, hockey, baseball. When a car went by, what'd you shout? Car! Right? As loud as you can. And then you froze. You got whatever was in the middle of the street to the side, and you waited. We'd wait with our hockey sticks like this. We'd wave to Matt's dad as he drove by. Okay. And then when the car's gone, we've also, if you've seen Wayne, Wayne's World, what do you say? Game on. Okay. Is it always a rule that you stand at the side of the street when there's not a car? No. It's a temporary rule for protection. 
And then when the car goes away, you step back into your game. This was the Levitical rule. It was a temporary emplacement to guard what God was doing until the line of Christ comes. And then when Jesus shows up, he shows that that separation wasn't permanent. He healed a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And we, you can look at the conversation they have in Luke. And she says, us Gentiles are dogs. We can at least have some scraps from your table. And Jesus says, your faith is amazing. And he heals her daughter without even being next to her daughter. He cured the centurion, a Roman servant's, uh, a Roman officer's servant, just by his faith. And then he says, this man has more faith than all of the rest of you. And he's pointing to his fellow Jewish people. Because his faith knew that God would heal even though he's miles away. He shows and he models that the kingdom of God was for breaking down that separation. Jews and Gentiles can now come, come into, into a relationship. relationship. And so Peter's and so following, following Jesus, around, Jesus and around and he knows what's, and he happening. Knows what's Jewish happening. Jewish people like Peter Jewish grew up knowing that, that, this, was knowing that this was probably a temporary thing. thing. He saw the he passages, saw the passages in, Isaiah, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and a bunch of other places, places that, that say that, that people will come down from the east or the west to come experience Christ. And he knows this is going to take place. But this is a radical shift for him. And these moments usually are. When labels that we give people are removed, when our prejudices are confronted, it's a world-shaking event. So we find Peter in, in Acts 10. 10 uh, uh, these, these Gentiles, Gentiles don't, don't fit, fit category. his category. He's been told He's to, been keep, distance told to keep distance from and them. He follows Jesus. And he follows these, Jesus. These labels aren't working. And so Acts 10, we find him in a place called Joppa. 33 miles from Jerusalem. A lot has been happening in Peter's world. First of all, he started talking and then people's, this tongue laid on his head and then all of a sudden he's speaking languages he's never held to, doesn't know he's, what he's doing and everyone thinks he's drunk. That's a big thing. And then he's the one getting in jail. He's been freed. He's had a lot happening to him. Then this guy named Saul who was supposed to kill Christians in Acts Eight, in Acts 7, he does, and he kills Stephen. But then in Acts 8, this guy Saul is now saying he's a Christian. And Peter's going, we're letting the wolf into the hen house. What are we doing here? He's going to kill us. And so he leaves. And then in Acts 8, you come along, and then you see that this one of his... his, his uh, Disciple brothers had, had met this eunuch on the side of the road and shared the gospel with him, and the gospel is now in Ethiopia. Peter's world is just exploding. So where does he go? What do you do when you've had a stressful day? You go for a walk. Maybe you, you get an Airbnb out on the coast, somewhere quiet. You have to collect your thoughts, right? So Peter's 33 miles, which is a long ways, away from Jerusalem. A lot's happened, and he needs a break. He just brought a woman named Tabitha back to life. Tabitha's other name is Dorcas. And if your other name was Dorcas, you'd go by Tabitha as well. And so this, the nicknames are just too much there. So he is sitting there trying to catch his breath because of everything that had happened. At the same time, so there's one screen. At the other time, there's a man named Cornelius who's gone through just as much. Cornelius on the other, was on the other end of the spectrum as Peter. He's likely has his own prejudgments of what the Jews do and what they shouldn't do. And, and he has his walls between them. He's an officer in the Roman army. Jews didn't like the Roman army. Therefore, Roman army probably didn't like them. He ate the wrong food. He hung out with the wrong crowd. He swore allegiance to the un 
to the wrong ruler. He was uncircumcised, unkosher, and unclean. Strike one, strike two, and strike three. Yet at the same time, something's happening to him. So if you look at Acts 10, chapter 1, at Caesarea, which is just a little bit north of where Joppa is, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known in the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision and distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's disenfranchised by the, the Roman and the pagan gods that he'd grown accustomed to. Yet there was something about the Jewish God, Yahweh, that drew him. He was generous with his money. There were certain things that Gentiles could do to be included in the religion of Judaism, but they would never be a part of the heritage of Judaism. And so he did what he could. He prayed. He gave generously. He had a, he had a great rapport with his neighbors, both in Caesarea and back in Italy. He, he was a good man. And so he was also on a first-name basis with an angel, which is good, good to know, right? The angel comes to him. And says, Cornelius, now there's something here. The angel got in touch with him and said, uh, there's a man named Peter. He's about 30 miles away. And he's having a mutual experience at the same time. Peter is out praying. He's on his roof as you read through the text. Peter's having an experience with an angel. He's praying around lunchtime, around 3 o'clock probably. And he's having a vision. How many of you have ever gone to bed hungry and you have food dreams? Thank you, Roger. Okay, we could talk about what we dream about. Peter's having a food vision, except this food vision is a blanket, and it's descending from heaven, and there's food on it that Peter has been told never to eat. It's likely pork. That's why the sermon title is Pigs in a Blanket, because you just can't get rid of that, right? And so the blanket is coming down with a whole bunch of pork on it, and Peter's refusing. No, I will never eat this. There's no way. Creeping things and birds and pork... I will never eat, and I've been told to eat it, and I, I will not. And so the voice comes again, and the voice comes three times and says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. In verse 14, surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. You can kind of see Peter patting his chest, right? The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And that's when we usually wake up from our food dreams, right, Roger? And we go make breakfast. This is what usually happens. There's a, a little, there's, Luke likes to do these little Easter eggs. And, and by Easter eggs, it really has to do with Easter, okay? And, and he likes to drop them in the text. And this is one of them. Uh, the vision happened three times, uh, which is a, the, the marker. The number three is... God's way of putting an emphasis or getting us to say, pay attention to this, or Luke's way of getting us to pay attention to this. It's an exclamation point. Peter has the vision three times. In this text, it's the third day. There are three visitors that end up coming to see Peter. Cornelius is praying at three times. And then if you count how many times this story is shared, it's three. Thank you for following with this. This is Luke's way of saying, hey, something's about to happen to here. What happened also in Luke's writings, also Matthew, Mark, and and John, on the third day? Jesus rose Easter, right? On the third day. So this is also the third day. This is a big deal. 
Something is about to happen. So when you're doing your quiet time and you start seeing numbers or patterns, pay attention to this. This is something in the text that we need to pay attention to. Peter's having food dreams and then the knock comes on his door. It's three guys who come and get Peter. And like any of us, if a knock comes on the door, do you necessarily answer it? No. But Peter was said, the, the, the voice came to him and said, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. The words don't hesitate can be translated, don't show partiality, Peter. I've sent them. Go answer it. It's likely Peter's on the roof of his house. He's, or he's saying at a guy named Simon's house. He looks over and sees three Italian dudes. They're Gentiles. I'm not going to answer the door. Don't show partiality, Peter. Answer the door. And then the last part. Then Peter invited them into the house to be his guest. Now, let's not answer this. But not miss this, okay? Peter is taking a bold step here. It was one thing for a Jewish person to, uh, at their own, uh, to, to have a Gentile come into their house. But Peter says, come into my house, and then they stay the night. Peter inviting them in is a big deal. Gentiles into a Jewish house is a big deal. Jew into a Gentile's house, nah. But he's saying, come into my house. Where is Peter again? At this place named Joppa. Peter is in a place where he is going to be told or has been told to go to a group of people that he doesn't necessarily like and share with them about Jesus. If you go back in your Bibles, we mentioned them last, last week as the only missionary in the Old Testament. Jonah was told to go to a place where he didn't want to go called Nineveh because they did terrible things to his people. What town did he go to? He goes to this port city of Joppa and he's prepared. He can go one way or another. So where's Peter? Joppa. He can go one way or another. He can go say, yes, God, I'm going to follow what you've told me to do. I'm going to take go with these three guys. I'm scared, but I'm going to go. I'm going to get over my prejudices and see what you're trying to do here. He has the same choice as Joppa, or Jonah, didn't go well. Same place. And so verse 24 says the following day he went with them. He arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them. And he had called together all of his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him, say, made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you're well aware that is against our law, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Is that how you really start with the crowd? <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here because you're impure. No, this is, this is Peter trying to sort something out in his head. He doesn't know what to say. He is simply being obedient. The word for unclean is the Greek word koinos. And earlier in this passage, it carried the meaning of something being very unacceptable because of defilement or the nature of the object itself. So Peter is saying, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I have all these preconceived notions of who you are and what you've done. But I was sent for and I came in verse 29 without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? Can you hear the paradigm crack a little bit? 
You know, a paradigm is, it's your set of beliefs, it's your walls, it's how you view and color the world. And then when you meet something that, uh, that shatters your paradigm, it's like, what on earth is happening? And Peter is having it happen all over again. The pendulum is swinging and it's breaking and he's trying to find his way into this new humanity that God's building. And he's taken a huge, enormous step. The distinction between Jew and Gentile is gone once and for all. And then as you read through uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter is going to very concisely, in a matter of a few sentences, lay out what happens with Jesus. He's telling them about Jesus. It's brief. He hits the high points, and, and he elaborated the ministry uh, on the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to be Lord of all, Peter says, not just the Jews. He talks about the baptism. He talks about the healings. He talks about the death, and he, fr- and he throws this phrase in, and the authorities put Jesus to death. And he's probably looking right at Cornelius because who'd Cornelius work for? The authorities. And that's an uncomfortable part, but he keeps going. Then he says, it's not just a rumor. He was there. I saw it all. And then he rose again. And then he's going to come back. And then he uses this phrase, and he's going to be the judge. So Peter's made the leap. This person is the judge not me. I can have my pre-judgment, my prejudice, but Jesus is the only one who can, and Jesus forgives. It's a powerful sermon, and it's entirely focused on Jesus. Before Peter Peter could even close in prayer, uh, which is something we pastors like to do, the events of Acts 2 is happening again. It's not only happening in Jerusalem. It's happening now in a Gentile city. The Holy Spirit is working there just as much as he's working here. God has crossed the divide, and Peter is witnessing it. Some have called this the Gentile Pentecost, and it was. It shows the mending of broken relationships because of Jesus. It shows that Jesus doesn't play the game of our prejudice, and it shows us a very real reality. The only person that can heal the prejudices in our heart based on racism or any, any other prejudices that we might harbor comes from the good theology of Jesus. Bad theology creates walls. Good theology destroys them. Peter then offered to baptize them as a symbol of them leaving their past lives and entering into a new relationship with Jesus, and they accepted. Then Peter says, do you mind if I stay here? And they said, sure. A Jewish person now entering a a Gentile home and then staying there. What do you think they had for breakfast the next day? Bacon and eggs, right? Or pigs in a blanket. You never know. Maybe they had that. All of this hinges on this verse in verse 28. He, it's Peter talking, said, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, if you think about it, there's a command written in there. There's, there's a declarative statement that says life, that we should not call people impure or unclean based upon some preconceived notion of who you think they should be. Life is a whole lot easier when you don't have that command. 
As long as we can call people common or unfit, we can place, we can plant them in our, on little islands far away from us and we can go our separate ways. The labels we create for others relieve us from the responsibility of having a relationship with them. Pigeonholing permits us to wash our hands and leave. And we do it all the time. Every single one of us does it from time to time. To say you don't is lying to yourself. But we do it. We say, oh, I know him. He's an alcoholic. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, this guy can't control himself. Oh, I know them. They're an immigrant. And then we start to wonder, are they here legally? We start to build a wall. Or we can't trust them. Or this person, this, did you hear about the new boss? They're a liberal Democrat. Or they're a conservative Republican. I heard they voted for that guy. Can't they see how misguided they are, is the internal thought? This guy drives a lifted diesel truck, the internal thought. Does he even care about the environment? Oh, I know her. Yeah, she's divorced. (laughs) She's got a lot of baggage. These are the thoughts that come and creep into our heads. Or that person's 28 years old, and then we think, can we really trust the youth of today? Aren't they all lazy? Or that person's in their 60s, and the young people go, dinosaur. We do it. This person didn't get the vac, so they don't care about COVID. We build these walls between people. This person happens to be a different race than I am, so I want nothing to do with them. We build these walls between us. The categories that we build, where, where we, are they, all they do is create distance and give us a convenient exit strategy to avoid them. And Peter learns on Acts 10 the very thing that you and I should pay attention to when we're confronted with the prejudices that we have. Because when we're honest about our prejudice, we'll begin to see that there are places every single one of us has where we put people in a label. John 1.14 says, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus blew past the categories and, the, and, and he blew them to pieces. He was about including people, not excluding people. He touched the one with leprosy. He healed the Gentiles. He spent way too much time with party goers that people even begin to call Jesus a drunk. Racism couldn't keep him from the Samaritan woman. Demons couldn't keep him from the possessed. He followed a guy named Zacchaeus home and had dinner with him and then say, you know what, I'm going to be a Facebook friend to you and follow you on Twitter and Instagram. Then he asked an IRS agent to be his, one of his closest disciples and that IRS agent wrote one of the Gospels. Jesus was about going to the person that we've labeled one way and saying they're not that way or I'm not going to keep that label from me going to them. In Philippians 2, 6, Paul says it this way, who being in very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So if anyone could label, if anyone could put us in a box, Jesus could. Yet what did he do? Not going to do it. It's not the way we're going to go. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to build my house right next to them. I'm going to live in their neighborhoods and I'm going to make myself nothing and then serve them. His example sends a message to those uh, in any room from to shy us away from any sort of superiority complex. Don't call any person common or unfit. 
or unclean. He displays to Peter exactly how we should live. God's call for each of us is to change the way we look at people, to not see them as other, as Jews or Gentiles, insiders or outsiders, liberal, conservative, white or black or Hispanic or Asian, vaxxed or unvaxxed. He says, don't look at people and label them. To label is to libel, as one person says. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we should do so no longer. Don't label people. Prejudice has no place in our hearts. There's a a bit of caution that comes in this passage as well. And I I think I'd probably kick myself a little bit if we don't mention this passage has been... uh, used in a lot of mistaken ways to say that it doesn't really make a difference what you think about Jesus or how you live your life, uh, that it's kind of like all religions lead to one way, and it comes under the guise of uh, a, a, a mistaught way of view or of tolerance that says that we just have to go along with everything. And if we look at this passage and we get to that, to simply erase every single distinction that people have, uh, that would be a mistake. Uh, That's not what the point of this passage is. If the point of this passage were to say that there's no distinction between people, you can do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, Jesus is cool with anything, uh, we we would miss the power, we'd miss what Peter discovered. Peter had discovered that God accepts everyone the way they are. Why does Luke, if, if Peter is just that, that if God discovers the people the way they are, then why did God send Peter to see Cornelius? Couldn't Cornelius just stay over in his section of the, of the world and never have an encounter with Christ? If God accepts him the way that he is, yes. He didn't need to meet Jesus. He didn't need to have the, an experience with the Holy Spirit. He could have just stayed over there and remained God-fearing Why bother sending Peter to tell them about Jesus? He's fine, right? But sometimes we think that. This passage is used as that sort of sign that we don't need to have anything to do with Jesus at all. Unclean is the new version of clean, like pink is the new version of black or whatever is now fashionable, or 30 is the new 20. And so we think that this person is the way they are. They don't need to have any kind of transformation to come to Christ or be in relationship with Christ. They can just stay in the life that they are because Jesus loves them just the way they are, and they don't need to change at all when they come to Jesus. That's certainly not what the point of this passage is. And I think both Peter and Cornelius would have been shocked at any sort of suggestion of that. Cornelius was a devout worshiper of Israel's God because he was fed up with the typical Roman gods and he was eager to follow a God that was real. The notion that God accepts us however we are is true in a sense. It's accurate to say that God's invitation meets us exactly where we are at our current address. My current address, 8325-229 South, Southwest. God meets me in that place. But is it God's intention that you stay in that place? No. God met Cornelius and Peter through dismantling the walls of prejudice and race that laid between them. Did God want Cornelius to stay in that place? No. No. 
God met Peter on a rooftop, him saying, those are people who are unclean. Did God want Peter to stay in that place? No, the invitation found Peter right where he was, loved him right where he was. The invitation said, get up and go. There's a transformation that comes, and that's what's at stake here. It's not the principle of tolerance, but the glorious truth that in Jesus alone, God had broken down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, and it's a radical display of his mercy and grace, and it's a radical display of the invitation that you and I have to come and be transformed. Every single person has access to Jesus. Every single person gets to have a transformational encounter with Christ, multiple times if needed, even the ones we've discarded, even the ones we've placed on an island far from interacting with us. In our lifetime, you and I are gonna come across people who we have, been, uh, have labeled and they've been tossed out because of lies, stereotypes, discrimination, fill in the blank. And sometimes they've been tossed out by the very organization that should be embracing them. So you and I get to choose today Do we get to neglect? Do we get to keep building the wall based on our prejudices, our prejudgments? Or do we get to step in and see ourselves out of the walls that we've built? Do we get to continue in the line of prejudice or do we get to end it? Our prejudices keep apart what God is trying to reunite. And I think we know what Jesus would do. Because when we look in the mirror, we exactly see what he has done. He's accepted even you and me. Therefore, he can accept anybody. He takes you the way you are and says, come, follow. And he takes the person that you've labeled and put over there and says, come, follow. Everyone has access. And so this morning, as we read this transformational thing with Peter and Cornelius, the question is coming to us, in what ways have you let prejudice stand in the way of you following Jesus? Have you labeled somebody? Have you put somebody on an island based on an exterior factor of what they might look like because where they've come from, or what they believe about a certain issue that you're passionate about? or because they go to that church over there instead of this church here? What ways have we prejudiced against people? And the invitation is the same to Peter as it is to us. Don't call people common or unfit when I've called them clean. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that this invitation comes to us uh, through the life of Peter that he had a transformational moment, a, uh, a moment that he had a choice to either go or stay, and he chose to go. Lord, we thank you that through this, we could see that the walls that keep us apart from our preconceived notions is gone because you never wanted that wall there in the first place. because you've destroyed the walls, we can have a restored relationship with the other, the marginalized, the put away, the forgotten, the last picked, the neglected. 
we can have a relationship with them through you, Jesus. It's based on your vision and an encounter with Christ. So Jesus, would you meet us where we are today? But may we not get lazy and stay there. May we accept the invitation to move. You love us just the way we are, but you never want us to stay that way. Follow your invitation.